From New York, this is Democracy Now! It was always a myth that you will have such forums for international economic cooperation um, running at the, with the exclusion of large parts of the world. Now we are moving towards a direction that includes those parts of the world that were excluded. As the African Union joins the G20 as a permanent member, we'll take a close look at the G20 summit, which just wrapped up in India, including Chinese President Xi Jinping's absence, how the summit fell short on addressing the climate emergency, and why Russia is praising the G20's final statement on the war in Ukraine. Then to Santiago, Chile, to look at how Henry Kissinger and President Nixon supported a coup in Chile 50 years ago this week, when General Augusto Pinochet ousted the democratically elected President Salvador Allende. The 50th anniversary of the coup in Chile is an extraordinarily important date, not only for Chileans, but for the rest of the world that is struggling with democracy versus the forces of authoritarianism. And as interest begins accruing again on federal student loans, we'll speak to Astor Taylor, author of the new book, The Age of Insecurity, coming together as things fall apart. My new book, The Age of Insecurity, looks at the way our economy is structured to make us all insecure by design, or what I call manufactured insecurity. Capitalism thrives on bad feelings, on making us feel like we'll never have enough or be enough or that the rug could be pulled out from under us at any moment. And I think recognizing this is actually very essential to building the solidarity that we need to address the various political crises that we're facing today. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Thousands of people are feared dead in Libya after a powerful Mediterranean cyclone brought devastating flooding to the eastern port city of Derna. Libya's National Center of Meteorology says the storm dumped more than 16 inches of rain on the city in less than 24 hours, causing two dams to burst, washing away entire neighborhoods. On Monday, a spokesperson for the Libyan National Army put the death toll in the thousands. The latest update regarding the death toll as the Prime Minister of Libya announced exceeds 2,000 in Derna city alone. May they rest in peace. There are also in Derna thousands of missing people, some 5,000 to 6,000 missing people, and this number could largely increase. Libya's Red Crescent said the number of missing people has reached 10,000, with at least 20,000 displaced from their homes. Much of Libya's infrastructure has crumbled since 2011, when the Obama administration and NATO backed an uprising against the longtime leader Muammar Gaddafi, setting off years of war. The catastrophic floods in Libya were triggered by Storm Daniel, a rare hurricane-like cyclone in the Mediterranean known as a Medicaine. It's the same storm that brought unprecedented flooding to Greece, Turkey and Bulgaria last week. In Greece, public health officials are warning residents against using stagnant flood water amidst fears over the spread of disease, while supplies of clean drinking water remain scarce. Nearly a quarter of this year's crop production was lost to flooding in Greece's central agriculture-producing region. In Morocco, hopes of finding survivors of last Friday's devastating earthquake are fading, as the government said the death toll is near 3,000. The United Nations says at least 300,000 people have been affected by the quake, a third of them children. 
Here in the United States, the number of major climate-related disasters so far this year has already set records. NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, said Monday 23 separate weather and climate disasters have caused at least a billion dollars in damages from January to August, surpassing the previous record set in all of 2020. In Geneva, the United Nations' top human rights official said Monday wealthy nations are failing to take steps needed to prevent the worst effects of the climate catastrophe. Volker Turk spoke to the U.N. Human Rights Council after the G20 wrapped up a weekend summit in India with no commitment to phase out fossil fuels. Climate change is pushing millions of people into famine. It is, it is destroying hopes, opportunities, homes and lives. In recent months, urgent warnings have become lethal realities again and again all around the world. We do not need more warnings. The dystopian future is already here. We need urgent action now. Ukraine's intelligence service says Ukrainian forces have seized control of four strategically important oil and gas drilling platforms in the Black Sea near the Russian-annexed Crimean Peninsula. Officials in Kyiv accused Russia of using the platforms as ammunition depots and radar stations and said their seizure brought Ukraine one step closer to President Zelensky's goal of recapturing Crimea. NATO's planning its largest military exercise since the Cold War. The Financial Times reports the war games in Germany and Poland next February and March will involve more than 50 naval vessels, 40,000 military personnel, hundreds of simulated air combat missions. On Monday, Sweden's government announced plans to boost military spending by nearly 30 percent ahead of its succession to NATO. Meanwhile, the Kremlin has expressed alarm after the Pentagon launched joint military exercises with Armenia's armed forces in the former Soviet Republic, a long-term Time regional partner of Russia. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has arrived in Russia for talks with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Kim made the journey from Pyongyang to the eastern Russian city of Vladivostok aboard an armored train. Putin is reportedly seeking to purchase stockpiles of North Korean artillery shells and rockets for Russia's war effort in Ukraine. In exchange, North Korea could receive food, fuel and technology from Moscow. In Washington, D.C., the State Department threatened new sanctions against Russia and North Korea, saying any such deal would violate multiple Security Council resolutions. Solutions. In Niger, leaders of the military junta that seized power in July are accusing France of massing troops and equipment in neighboring ECOWAS nations in preparation for military intervention in Niger. These underhanded delaying tactics are designed to dull the patriotic ardor of the Niger people in their fight for the total withdrawal of French troops from Niger in order to achieve a more successful military intervention against our country. Tension has been escalating between Niger and its former colonial ruler France since the military coup. French troops and France's ambassador have ignored demands to leave Niger. The Biden administration's cleared the way to release $6 billion in Iranian oil revenue blocked by U.S. sanctions in exchange for five Americans imprisoned in Iran. Five Iranian nationals currently imprisoned in the United States are also being released as part of the agreement. Iranian officials will be allowed to use the funds to buy food, medicine and other humanitarian needs. Republicans have fiercely criticized the deal. Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton accused President Biden of, quote, paying ransom to the world's worst state sponsor of terrorism, unquote. 
in the occupied West Bank. Hundreds of Palestinians took to the streets Sunday, demanding justice for 16-year-old Milad Al-Rai, who was killed by Israeli soldiers during a raid on a refugee camp near the city of Hebron a day earlier. Some 185 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank so far this year, including dozens of children and teens. Last week, the former head of Israel's spy service, Mossad, said Israel's imposing apartheid on Palestinians. Tamir Pardo told the Associated Press quote, in a territory where two people are judged under two legal systems, that's an apartheid state, he said. Here in the United States, the Food and Drug Administration's approved new COVID-19 booster shots for people as young as six months old, with vaccination set to begin as soon as this week. The vaccines produced by Pfizer and Moderna have been reformulated against an Omicron coronavirus subvariant that was dominant when the shots were selected by the FDA in June. The vaccines are the first COVID shots not to be purchased by the federal government. Most health insurance plans, including Medicare, will cover the cost of the vaccines. Meanwhile, the CDC will administer a program to cover the cost of vaccinating people without insurance or whose plans won't cover the shots. This month, the World Health Organization warned of a concerning rise in COVID-19 cases ahead of winter in the Northern Hemisphere. But hospitalizations are increasing in the Americas, in Europe, in what we call our Southeast Asia region. Um, and that is of worry, given that um, when we get to colder months um, in, in some countries, people tend to spend more time indoors, aggregated together, and viruses that transmit through the air, like uh, COVID, um, will take advantage of that. In Washington, D.C., at least seven people were arrested Monday for peacefully occupying the office of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy demanding Congress reauthorize funding for a global program to prevent and treat HIV and AIDS. The president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, known as PEPFAR, is set to expire on September 30th and has been stalled by Republicans who claim some of the funds have been used for abortion access. Housing Works CEO Charles King was among those arrested. The nonprofit said in a statement, quote, PEPFAR has saved millions of lives. It's criminal for some members of Congress to treat it as a political football. And in Georgia, Atlanta city officials are facing backlash after they refused to begin counting and verifying over 116,000 signatures submitted by activists Monday in support of a public referendum that could block the construction of Cop City, the massive $90 million police training center that would be the largest in the United States. The effort now appears to be in legal limbo after an appellate court suspended a previous order by another judge that had granted activists more time to turn in the petitions. The original deadline to get the measure on the ballot was August 21st. Atlanta officials said they won't verify signature forms until the appellate court rules on whether the deadline extension was lawful. This is the latest setback for the Stop Cop City movement. It comes after 61 protesters were indicted on racketeering charges. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden's arrived back in the United States after attending the G20 summit in India and making a state visit to Vietnam. The G20 summit brought together leaders from many of the world's largest economies, but there were two notable absences, Chinese President Xi Jinping and Russian President Vladimir Putin. In a key development, the African Union has been admitted to the G20 as a permanent member. The AU consists of 55 member states with a population of over 1.3 billion.
Much of the negotiations at the G20 centered on joint statement that included a section on the war in Ukraine. The final statement made no reference to Russia's aggression in Ukraine. Instead, the document stated, quote, all states must refrain from the threat or use of force to seek territorial acquisition, unquote. Meanwhile, on the climate crisis, the G20 joint statement called for just a, quote, phase down of coal instead of a phase out, as many demanded. Other fossil fuels weren't mentioned in the statement. The G20 also ignored calls for nations to enact new taxes on the ultra-rich. On the sidelines of the G20, the United States, India, Saudi Arabia and the European Union announced plans for a major railway and port project to connect the Middle East with India. Many see the proposal as an alternative to China's Belt and Road Initiative. The summit represented the first time that the G20 has met in India. Ahead of the gathering, India faced criticism for bulldozing slum areas in New Delhi, leaving many residents without a home. The G20 summit also occurred as Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi appears to be moving toward changing the name of India to Bharat, a Sanskrit term which is already India's second official name but is not widely used internationally. Invitations to dinners during the G20 use the name Bharat instead of India. To talk about all this and more, we're joined by Jayati Ghosh, an economics professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, previously an economics professor at Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi, India, where she taught for 35 years. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Professor. It's great to have you with us. Why don't you talk about what you thought was most significant outcome from the G20 and all the developments within it and the negotiations? I think the basic lesson of this G20 meeting is that geopolitics is everything and that the leaders of G20 are so intent on playing their particular geopolitical games right now that they really don't care about what is required for the world as a whole. And that's important because if you remember, G20 was actually set up because it was argued that the UN is too unwieldy, the international organizations can't do what they're supposed to do, so we need a smaller, more agile group of the countries that really matter who are going to actually go out there and do things. In fact, April 2009 was the high watermark of them doing anything. And since then, really, they haven't been effective. But now we are at the point where we're even grateful if they can get out a common statement. The whole year of India's G20 presidency, there was no common statement. This is the first one. And it's completely banal. It's bland. There is really nothing in terms of anything to deliver for the rest of the world or even for their own country's people. Professor Ghosh, let's go to, speaking of statements, uh, the Ukraine statement, the war statement, um, which was apparently negotiated over a hundred hours. I didn't even think the summit lasted that long. Can you explain what came out of it and why Russia is so pleased with it? I think this statement actually reflects India's growing political cloud because all these countries are trying to court India. And what it does is it's a backtracking from the statement in Bali, the Indonesian presidency, in which the invasion by Russia of Ukraine was condemned and in which there was a request for the withdrawal immediately. All of that has gone. Uh, there's no mention of Russia. It's a very bland kind of statement that says, yes, you know, hostility should cease and countries should not try and get more territory from one another, kind of equating the two. And this is a reflection of the fact that 
the G7, let's face it, currently sees India as more important than, or rather the current leadership in India as more important uh, to court than look, standing up for uh, what is clearly something very strong on their agenda otherwise in Ukraine, or even for human rights in India and other countries. So President Xi Jinping was not there. Uh, President Vladimir Putin was not there. The significance of this? Well, Putin can't attend any international conferences in countries that, uh, because of the, the problem that he could be arrested because of the warrant against him. In, that's happened in South Africa, for example, recently, and of course now in India. But uh, the absence of Xi Jinping, which was a re relatively recent announcement, is interesting. It's Xi Jinping saying he can't be bothered wasting his time. He went to the BRICS summit just uh, the week before, and it was a significant summit because it involved the expansion of the BRICS. He's going to various other international organizations. He's really telling G7, we don't need you. And can you talk about climate change, uh, the climate catastrophe, and how the G20 addressed it. So many climate activists around the world and right now victims of uh, global heating, so deeply concerned about the lack of real statement about it. In fact, what is most appalling is that this G20 has done nothing for the major problems of our time, and which are no longer in the future. They're all upon us, as we know. Uh, climate change, absolutely, and the major disasters that are occurring across the world, really nothing of significance, just the usual statements that mean nothing. No concrete plan of action, just a general statement to work towards reducing fossil fuels, as if nothing has changed, as if, you know, the world is still the same world that it was even last year, which it is not. So there was nothing really on any meaningful movement on climate change. There was nothing on resolving the major debt crisis, which in about 80 countries today is worsening the possibilities of dealing with climate change as well. And yet this was an issue that India had made one of the major concerns of its presidency. Modi had actually said, we are going to work towards a resolution of the debt crisis. Nothing on that. A terrible silence on the lack of taxation strategies, for example, wealth taxes on the very rich and sharing of information that would enable that, or even a better deal for corporate taxation than the one that is currently on the table. Nothing in terms of finding the resources that would enable countries to deal with not just the mitigation, but right now just the dealing with the impacts of climate change that so many are facing. The African Union has been admitted to the G20 as a permanent member. The AU consists of 55 member states with a population of over 1.3 billion, uh, just under the population of India. This is South African president's spokesperson, Vincent Maguena. It was always a myth that you will have such forums for international economic cooperation um, running at the, with the exclusion of large parts of the world. Now we are moving towards a direction that includes those parts of the world that were excluded. So talk about the significance of the African Union now being a permanent member of the G20, and also whether you see the G20 descending in power and BRICS, right? Brazil, Russia, India, South Africa, the conference that just took place in South Africa, ascending. 
Well, you know, the African Union should always have been a member. It's absurd that the European Union was a member and the African Union was not. I mean, that absolutely is the case. And so clearly this is something that should have happened much earlier. But what's the point of just being invited to parties, which is really now what it's become? It's a talking shop and it's parties. No outcomes, nothing major, no serious uh, initiative that would actually transform anything in the world today whether on global health or on global public investment generally or on all of the issues that I've just mentioned. So, yes, it's good that Africa is part of the party, but that's about it because it's not the G20 is not doing anything. Now, that brings me to then what does it mean relative to the other uh, groupings that are emerging and, you know, BRICS plus, for example. I think, you know, what we're seeing is a period of significant realignments. So it's all these pieces moving around on chessboards in a game where everybody wants to suss out what the other player is doing, but no one's quite sure, and they can change. So I think what we're entering is a period of significant instability, not just globally in the economic terms, as we know, but also in terms of geopolitics. Different alliances, different shades of cooperation or antagonism. And it's no longer certainly unipolar, but I don't think there are very clear poles. Everybody says China is another pole. It's not yet of that same level, but definitely there are many more different alliances. And we're going to see many more of those, whether they're expressed in groupings or not. Is the G20 losing power? Well, you know, what power does it have? What has it done with that power over the last uh, really more than 12 years. So I would say the G20 is a collection of potentially very powerful governments that don't necessarily represent the interests of their own people, I might add. But nonetheless, this collection has not done very much over the last 12, 13 years. And can you also talk about the sidelines of the G20, the U.S., India, Saudi Arabia, European Union announcing plans for this major railway and port project to connect Middle East with India. Uh, many see it as a proposal to counter China's Belt and Road Initiative and the also normalization even further of MBS into the international community, Mohammed bin Salman. Oh, I think the normalization of MBS is complete, and it shows how little G20 leaders really care about human rights. And I think that's evident also in the courting of Narendra Modi, who has been responsible for quite significant democratic backsliding in India. Uh, but what will this new initiative achieve? Well, I'll wait to see if they put their money where their mouth is. There have been many attempts by US and Europe to counter the Chinese uh, influence, as they call it in terms of the Belt and Road Initiative or other kinds of things. But then they just talk a lot. They don't put, really put money in there. The difference is that China actually put significant resources and generated significant investments. So let's see if that happens. At the moment, I'm a little doubtful. And what about the calls on G20 nations to agree on increasing taxes on the global wealthy? In the last decade, billionaires have more than doubled their wealth from 56 to $11.8 trillion. You were among the signatories of a letter addressed to the G20 ahead of the summit this weekend, along with U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders, the former U.N. General Assembly President Mariana Espinosa, and hundreds of others. Outline what you're calling for. How would this tackle global inequity and rising poverty? You know, there are two things going on here. One is that 
even as we talk about you know extreme inequality it keeps rising by the day inequality is ballooning beyond any historical norms beyond anything we could have imagined even 10 years ago and yet we don't have minimal resources to address not just basic needs of humans not just for meeting the sustainable development goals but even to address the calamities that are occurring upon people so we desperately need to raise public investments this whole idea that you can do it through these public private partnerships with leveraging public funds for private is fine in principle but right now you need public resources you absolutely have to generate the money to do these basic things and it's so easy because there is this obscene wealth creation which is really a result of influencing government regulations and government policies all you have to do is tax a little bit of that uh, in a way that they wouldn't even notice because frankly no one notices that level of extreme uh, ownership no they don't really certainly they don't use all that wealth but they don't actually notice how much there is when you're into those billions and so on so in fact relatively small wealth taxes on the extremely wealthy not on all wealth on the extremely wealthy would generate very significant amounts of revenue even in countries like india you would get for example less than 1000 families if you tax them 4% of their wealth you would get 1% of gdp which is double the total health expenditure public health expenditure in the country so you could do this very easily it's a question that is striking that all these meetings they come and they talk about blah 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 they don't address some of the easy low hanging fruit that could have been agreed to just sharing information that would enable people the governments to institute wealth taxes on the rich of their own countries wherever they keep their wealth Finally I wanted to ask you about Prime Minister Narendra Modi's placard at the opening of the G20 summit on Saturday referring to India as Bharat raising speculation of a change of name for India. Um can you talk about the significance of this very old and now new for the international community name what it means um and what it represents? You know it's a very strange thing that has just happened. Um the constitution of india says india that is bharat and very often when we are speaking in hindi or in some other indian language we use the term bharat and the two have been interchangeable forever certainly all my life i remember them being used interchangeably but suddenly this move to remove india from the, the from the international uh, thing is bizarre because they're claiming that it's a colonial uh, remnant which it's not the word india comes way back for example it's from the river sindh and when alexander crosses they say okay the people on the other side of the sindhu river but so it's way back okay because it's a very very long history for the name india but the real reason that they're doing this is because a group of opposition countries i think now there are 24 in the opposition alliance and they have called themselves india i n d i a indian national democratic inclusive alliance and this has actually uh, created a lot of nervousness in the ruling party so many people see this as a quite open knee jerk reaction oh you're going to call yourself india i am going to remove expand india from all official words we we won't allow you to claim india it's it's bizarre it would be funny if it weren't also so expensively ridiculous because it will mean a huge expense in changing the names of everything 
<laughs> the Reserve Bank of India, for example, the currency notes and, and everything. Is it similar to what's happened in Burma with the military junta renaming Burma Myanmar? Yes, Burma is a colonial name. Um, but um, and in the case of India with Narendra Modi, would you say it signifies a kind of Hindu supremacy, even though it's Sanskrit, not Hindi? I would say that uh, pretty much everything this government does is has an underlining of an attempt to impose Hindu supremacy. So, yes, this is certainly part of that. But the immediate uh, uh, sort of bringing in of this measure is really a, a panicky response to the fact that the opposition uh, uh, parties are coming together and calling themselves India. Jayati Ghosh, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Economics professor now at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Next up to Santiago, Chile, where we continue our discussion on this 50th anniversary of the U.S.-supported coup. And look at how Henry Kissinger and President Nixon, what the role they played in supporting General Augusto Pinochet, ousting the democratically elected President Salvador Allende, back in 30 seconds. Pirates, yes, they rob I, sold I to the merchant ships. Minutes after they took I from the bottomless pit. But my hand was made strong by the hand of the Almighty. We forward in this generation. Triumphantly Won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Cause all I ever had Redemption song covered by Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we turn again to Chile which on Monday marked the 50th anniversary of the U.S.-backed military coup that overthrew the democratically elected socialist president Salvador Allende and ushered in a 17-year dictatorship under the rule of General Augusto Pinochet, and during which some 40,000 people were politically executed, disappeared, imprisoned, or tortured. Allende's daughter, the socialist senator Isabel Allende, spoke at Monday's commemoration ceremony in Santiago, not to be confused with the author. I was the last person from my father's entourage to enter the palace along with other people on that day. We had a mandate to tell what happened then, what Unidad Popular stood for, and the barbarity that had started to rise. Memory is the first step to reach the truth, but we need more to reach justice, reparations, and to ensure that the acts committed on that day are not repeated. In the days after the U.S.-backed military coup in Chile, September 11, 1973, that other September 11, 
Then U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger told President Richard Nixon, quote, in the Eisenhower period, we would be heroes and lamented that the media would not fully report on the U.S. role. That is changing now. Last week, a Chilean television channel broadcast a new documentary titled Operation Chile, Top Secret, that was based in part on declassified records about the coup that were obtained by the National Security Archives Chile Documentation Project. For more, we go to Santiago. We're joined by Peter Kornblow, the director of the National Security Archives Chile Documentation Project. On the 30th anniversary of the coup in September 2003, he published the Pinochet file a declassified dossier on atrocity and accountability. On this, the 50th anniversary, 20 years later, the book has been revised and published in Chile for the first time. His latest piece for the nation, Chile, the secrets the U.S. government continues to hide. Peter Kornblue, welcome back to Democracy Now! Today from Chile. Um, can you talk about what is now known and what is not known about the U.S. role, especially as this has been the year that people have feted Henry Kissinger on his 100th birthday? Well, Amy, I'm, I'm delighted to be with you and your audience uh, on this poignant, powerful, dramatic, dynamic, and admittedly divisive 50th anniversary here in Chile. I was actually at the event yesterday where Senator Isabel Allende spoke. Um, she was incredibly moving, particularly standing in front of the very building uh, in which she last saw her father alive 50 years ago. And I do want to say to your audience that Nation magazine has published an excerpt of her memoir um, just yesterday where in English, where she recounts that very day, 50 years ago, in, in dramatic and, and, and very, very heartbreaking detail. Um, you know, there's a, a lot known about the U.S. role in, in Chile, um, but there's a lot to be reminded of as well. And then there are the secrets uh, that remain. And just to give your audience a sense of what we know, 50 years ago today, on the 12th of September, 1973, Henry Kissinger called together a special interagency uh, committee known as the WASAG, the Washington Special Action Group. Um, and literally within 24 hours of the coup, he was in discussion with uh, these interagency representatives on how to help the Pinochet regime consolidate, even as people were being killed and their bodies dumped in the street and rounded up and put into a concentration camp at the stadium and bodies floating in the Mapocho River here in Santiago. Kissinger convened this, this, this committee, and, and we have the declassified memorandum of conversation. And, you know, actually, the officials there just started joking about, about, about the coup. Kissinger told everybody, President Nixon is, is concerned that uh, we might want to send somebody to Salvador Allende's funeral. I, I told him that um, we weren't going to do that. And then somebody pipes up and says, well, Mr. Secretary, you could go. Um, uh, and then another official says, our policy on Allende worked pretty well. Um, and this gives you a sense of the attitude of, of the U.S. officials and the efforts made literally in the first minutes to help the military regime consolidate. After three years of an effort to destabilize the constitutional government of Chile, uh, the immediate effort to help the unconstitutional dictatorial military regime um, uh, con consolidate it, it, its power for the next you know, 17 years. Um, there are other secrets that we want to get out. The Chilean government has asked um, the Biden administration for a special declassification diplomacy 
uh, gesture for this 50th anniversary. So far, only two documents have been declassified. There are many more that have been asked for that hopefully, you know, at some point will will come out. It's just been announced that President Boric will, will come to Washington uh, for the anniversary of the Letelier Moffat assassination. And that would be a good time for the Biden administration to to release some more documents as a gesture to Chile. And explain who Orlando Letelier was and Ronnie Moffat and their assassination on Embassy Row in Washington, D.C. I mean, you know, the the horror of, of the U.S. policy and its support for the Pinochet coup and the Pinochet regime is that that regime turned out to be a, a, a regime of state-sponsored international terrorism. That terrorism came to the streets of our nation's capital on September 21st, 1976, three years after the coup. Um, Pinochet personally ordered his secret police to send uh, a death squad, basically, to Washington. Um, agents of the intelligence service uh, here in Santiago, known as DINA, put a car bomb under the under the front um, side of the of the automobile of the leading opponent of the Pinochet regime, former uh, Chilean ambassador to Washington, Orlando Letelier, and he and his 25-year-old colleague, Ronnie Carpenter Moffat, were, were, were killed uh, in this um, act of terrorism when the bomb exploded. So every year there is a ceremony at Sheridan Circle, and, and this year, because of this kind of special anniversary, uh, President Boric, it has just been announced just minutes ago, will we'll be at Sheridan Circle. He gave a rousing speech yesterday, basically saying there are always there's always an alternative to political violence. Um, and it's time for the world, which is in a deep struggle um, between democracy and the forces of authoritarianism to 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 come to an agreement that civil discord, even if people disagree, even if parties disagree, is, is far preferable to the Pinochets of the world. You know, I was just listening to a speech you gave, Peter Cornblue, where you contrasted what Henry Kissinger wrote in his series of memoirs about the U.S. role in Chile and what you actually have documentation of. Because like President Nixon, Henry Kissinger recorded his conversations, his phone conversation. What were they called? Telecoms, uh, telephone right. conversations, telemems, mm -hmm. telephone memos. Telcoms, telcoms. Telcoms. Can you explain what it was he said, and specifically about the meeting he had with Pinochet, what he said he talked about, what he actually talked about at the, with the contemporaneous information coming out? Well, we have Kissinger's telecons of his conversations with Richard Nixon, which is uh, kind of ironic because Nixon secretly taped his phone conversations, and he didn't know that Kissinger— secretly taped his phone conversations. And when they talked to each other, they were both secretly taping their conversations. In the case that you're mentioning, Henry Kissinger came to Santiago, Chile, where I am right now, uh, in June of 1976, and he met with Augusto Pinochet. And his aides all told him, you have to be absolutely clear with Pinochet that he uh, has to return to civilian rule and that he has to stop you know, crimes against humanity, stop violating human rights. Because Chile has become a cause celeb. This is literally the memorandums uh, that are going to Kissinger's his briefing papers for this meeting. Chile has become a cause celeb, much like Franco Spain. Um, uh, and the whole world is watching. And all that Pinochet is going to understand from you is, um, you know, a direct kind of uh, reproach uh, for his conduct. And instead, Kissinger goes into the meeting and he tells uh, Pinochet that uh, that 
uh, in Kissinger's opinion, Pinochet is a victim of leftist propaganda around the world and that the only crime he's committed is overthrowing a government that was going communist. And Kissinger basically says to him, we want to help you, not hurt you. You did a great service to, to, to the West. I'm here. I have to give a, a speech on human rights, but the speech is not directed at you. But, you know, it would help if you could uh, clarify your position on human rights a little bit, because the U.S. Congress is breathing down my neck and I'm not going to be able to give you aid um, if uh, because the Congress is going to cut off that aid um, unless something changes here. But, you know, these platitudes to, to, to Pinochet are not mentioned in Kissinger's memoirs. Instead, in his memoirs, he goes in and says, oh, I talked to Pinochet about human rights. And I talked to Pinochet about democracy. But we have the actual memorandum of conversation, not a telecom, but the memorandum of conversation that was taken um, from notes of Kissinger's own uh, deputy at that meeting. Um, and he doesn't mention uh, democracy really ever. Um, and his human rights issue is only kind of peripherally tied in um, to all these compliments that he gives to Pinochet. So, you know, the, the, the truth is in the declassified documents, not in the memoirs. Kissinger's memoirs are filled with self-serving spins uh, on his role in history. And his role in history is recorded in great detail on Chile. He was the leading architect of the policies and strategies to overthrow Allende, and he was the leading enabler. Uh, in the United States of a government of uh, a push to consolidate, help Pinochet consolidate his bloody regime. I wanted to go um, back to 2016 to testimonies of survivors of torture under the Pinochet dictatorship revealed in an art exhibit. The government had sought to keep the testimony secret for decades. The stories were collected as part of a commission launched in 2003 to document torture under the dictatorship of U.S.-backed General Augusto Pinochet. In 2004, the Chilean government passed a law ordering the testimonies remain secret for 50 years until 2054. But in 2016, this project launched by the Chilean artist Francisco Papas Pritas and torture survivors succeeded in declassifying these testimonies. This is one of the torture survivors. On London Street, I was held approximately 10 days. While I was there, I suffered all kinds of tortures, specifically sexual political violence, psychologically torture threatening me with the detention of my children, and psychological torture forcing me to listen to how they tortured other people, which is something very difficult to endure. Psychologically, you're left traumatized, because when they torture you, in some way, you are all the time resisting. But when you listen to how they torture other people, and I have talked about this with several people, it is one of the most difficult things to endure. That's Scarlett Mathieu Iguerico. Peter Cornblow, as we wrap up, the importance of hearing these voices from 50 years ago and what they teach us about today. Um, in the world, the power of the survivors and their testimony, and particularly with the United States, its role in the world? Well, those testimonies, um, which, you know, are circulating here in Chile when, when victims um, are able to speak out, and some of them can and some of them can't uh, because of the horrors they suffer. Those testimonies are, are so important. They're human reminders of the horrors, the nightmares of the Pinochet dictatorship. But Chile does not want to go down that route again, even though there are, you know, a, a significant amount of Pinochetistas here, a rising amount 
who claim that Pinochet did nothing wrong, that the coup was inevitable, that the coup was Allende's fault, that the United States had no role, that Pinochet was a statesman. All those issues are, are under fierce discussion here as disinformation flows in Chile. And the declassified documents that the United States has lend tremendous evidence to the truth about what happened. And that truth we have to remember, not only for Chileans not to repeat the past, but for other countries in the world, including our own, where the forces of the right, very authoritarian voices are rising into dangerous levels um, that actually threaten our democracy uh, and others. Well, I want to thank you, Peter Kornbluh, for joining us. Director of the National Security Archives Chile Documentation Project has just published a revised edition of the Pinochet File, a declassified dossier on atrocity and accountability. Uh, and it also has been published in Chile for the first time. Um, we're also going to link to our conversation with Ariel Dorfman yesterday, um, one of the last people to see Salvador Allende alive in the Moneda, the Chilean palace in Santiago on September 11th. Um, uh, also, uh, he spoke about his new book, The Suicide Museum. And we're also posting at democracynow.org our interviews with Isabel Allende, the other Isabel. Uh, the Isabel we just heard is the Chilean state senator who spoke so movingly about what happened 50 years ago. Um, uh, Isabel Allende, the Chilean-American author, also talks about that day, September 11th. 1973, the other September 11th, 50 years ago this week. Next up, as interest begins accruing again on federal student loans, we'll speak to Astra Taylor, author of the new book, The Age of Insecurity, coming together as things fall apart. Back in 30 seconds. God Bless the Child, performed by Sonny Rollins. The jazz great turned 93 this week. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I am Amy Goodman. The COVID-19 student loan forbearance ended this month, and some 40 million Americans once saw interest begin to accrue again on their federal student loans on September 1st. Next month, repayments on the loans themselves will resume. As people struggle to make their first payments in more than three years, many are being targeted by robocalls that promote scams which offer help that is not real. Student loan borrowers in Minnesota, who paid one of the 52 companies suspected of falsely promising them loan forgiveness, could get help after the state launched an investigation. This is Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison. We at the Minnesota Attorney General's office opened up an investigation into some companies that uh, are purporting to help students uh, do uh, debt relief. What if they tell you that they can forgive your loan or cancel your loan? 
you know, they probably cannot. Really, only that's something the federal government can do. Know that if it's too good to be true, it probably is. Last week, the Biden administration announced four million student loan borrowers are now enrolled in a new so-called income-driven repayment plan called Saving on a Valuable Education, or SAVE, that it launched over the after the Supreme Court ruled against Biden's plan to forgive up to $20,000 in federal student loans per person in June. Meanwhile, another tool launched by the Debt Collective helps people apply to the Department of Education and ask them to cancel the borrower's debt. As the website notes, quote, filling out this form creates an individual demand letter tailored to your own student debt story, calling on the Department of Education to use its powers to cancel not just your debt, but everyone's. For more on all of this, we're joined by Astra Taylor, organizer with the Debt Collective. She has also just published her new book titled The Age of Insecurity, Coming Together as Things Fall Apart. Thanks for being with us, Astra, as you go on your book tour um, for The Age of Insecurity. Let's start off by um, talking about this month, what's just happened September 1st and then October 1st, and what you're suggesting happens. Yes. In terms of student debt uh, payments, the COVID pause, as you mentioned, has ended and interest has begun to accrue and people are going to be expected to make payments October 1st. This is entirely unnecessary. Uh, The sky hasn't fallen over the last few years with student loan payments paused. It's proof that the government doesn't actually need the payments of student debtors to function, which should make us ask why these payments are being uh, turned on at all. Um, And the debt collector's position has always been that the president of the United States has the authority through the Higher Education Act of 1965 to cancel all student debt. Uh, This is the legal authority that President Biden has said he will now try to use in the wake of the Supreme Court decision that shot down his initial debt relief plan. Uh, We're trying to push him to to actually do that and use use his full powers um, because none of this is necessary. This debt can be erased. Again, the government doesn't need student uh, debtors to pay their bills um, to, to keep operating. And, you know, an incredible amount of of suffering is about to to commence. I mean, one thing we're hearing from uh, people who are filling out our new student debt release tool is that they're going to have to make impossible decisions between paying their student loans and paying their rent or paying their medical or dental bills. We are hearing from people who are considering suicide. Um, And so it's absolutely urgent (laughs) that the president fulfill his promise and address this crisis and cancel student debt. And I encourage everyone who's listening who has federal student loans to take 10 or 20 minutes and use our student debt release tool and become part of this movement uh, to push for debt abolition. And again, explain why you don't use the term debt forgiveness, but debt cancellation or relief. Debtors have done nothing wrong. You know, we believe that education is a right Uh, People go to college because they're curious, because they want to have a career that requires certain professional training. This isn't a crime. (laughs) This isn't something that you should need forgiveness for if you can't pay your your student loans. Um, You know, it's absolutely uh, ridiculous that a four year college experience can cost, you know, upwards of two hundred thousand dollars in this country. 
So our position is that debtors uh, shouldn't be blamed, uh, therefore they shouldn't ask for forgiveness, and instead the Debt Collective uses the language of debt cancellation, debt relief, and debt abolition, um, because we think that the people who actually are morally culpable are the folks who built this outrageous uh, debt for education system that weighs heaviest on the people who have the least. Explain what SAVE is, Astra. SAVE is a new name for uh, another iteration of an income-driven uh, repayment plan. You know, people who have had student loans for a while will be familiar. There was um, uh, IDR programs uh, uh, in various forms. And it's just yet another tweak from the Department of Education where they're attempting to fix a broken system without really fixing it. And the, the fix is obvious. We need, we need robust public investment in education, to make education a democratic right. This isn't a, this isn't a fanciful idea. You know, a few generations ago, public university was, was free or close to it for people who attended. Um, and so the SAVE program, you know, might work. It, it might be a, a beneficial program for some people to enroll in. Um, uh, it is increasing uh, monthly payments for other people, but that's beside the point. The point is we've seen these fixes before and they're not real fixes. <laughs> they're, uh, they're just band-aids on a, on a system that needs to be completely overhauled. You know, so the debt collective is, is critical of this program. It certainly is no substitute for debt cancellation. Uh, and it, again, is no fix. What we need is public investment so that people can afford to actually learn uh, and so that we can have an educated citizenry without demanding that not just young people, but all people who have to go back to school mortgage their futures. It's, you know, the, the, real, the real fix is, is obvious, and actually um, the Debt Collective is committed for, for fighting for that. And your thoughts on Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison going after 52 companies um, suspected yeah. of falsely promising them loan forgiveness uh, could get help? Well, this is a problem. You, these scammers wouldn't be able to uh, scam people if the system wasn't so confusing. I mean, the SAVE program is a great example of that. The student lending system is incredibly Byzantine. It's, it's overwhelming. I mean, I know people who are student loan experts, who are student uh, loan lawyers, and have still had problems as they've enrolled in these various programs trying to get public service loan forgiveness or, or enroll in versions of income-driven repayment. Um, so, you know, this is the, the broken system is what's creating opportunities for these scam artists. So here, you know, if you want to get rid of the scammers, uh, cancel student loans and do it automatically and immediately without demanding onerous paperwork. You know, the Department of Education can cancel student loans overnight without making people apply. And so it is these uh, confusing processes that is creating opportunities for scammers to take advantage of people who are financially struggling. Astra, let's talk about your new book, The Age of Insecurity, Coming Together as Things Fall Apart. You write about student debt, the climate crisis, even 9-11, the anniversary this week. You write, how we understand and respond to insecurity is one of the most urgent questions of our moment, for nothing less than the future security of our species hangs in the balance. Uh, talk about how you put this all together and people's feelings of insecurity, even as the Biden administration touts a strong economy and what you think needs to happen, what the debt collective is recommending. 
Yeah, this is kind of a kaleidoscopic book that mixes politics and economics and history and, and a bit of memoir that's hopefully kind of humorous. Uh, to look at the way insecurity is really essential to our economy. When we were your previous guest, Jyoti Ghosh, who's brilliant, you did a great job of laying out the way inequality is spiraling today. Um, and a lot of my work has focused on the problem of inequality and the obscene concentration of wealth and poverty. But insecurity is how living in a radically unequal world is actually felt day after day. And, you know, if organizing with the Debt Collective has taught me anything, it's that economic issues are always also emotional ones. You know, this the spike of shame when the bill collector uh, calls or are foreboding about saving for retirement, you know, and of course, also our, our anxieties about uh, our collapsing planet and climate change. So I think insecurity is is pervasive. But what I'm trying to show in the book is it's actually built into our economy. It's not just something that we feel spontaneously. We're all insecure by design or something I call manufactured insecurity. We see this with advertising. You know, no advertisement will ever tell you that you're great and the world needs changing. And we see this in, um, you know, uh, official monetary policy that tries to ramp up uh, worker insecurity, job insecurity, so that um, workers will, you know, be more docile and won't go on strike. And I, I think that looking at insecurity, recognizing just how widespread it is, can help us um, actually have empathy for each other and, and, and build powerful coalitions. I hope we can turn that insecurity into solidarity so that we can fight for the, the just and sustainable and collective forms of security that we really need. And what would that solidarity look like? How do you think it could most mm. effectively be expressed? And what about um, in this very polarized country, uh, Republicans saying, yes, we're talking about a time of insecurity. Uh, they may not so much be focusing on inequality um, to undermine and to go after position themselves better for the next election. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the right wing is talking about insecurity. It's 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 stoking it. It's speaking to people's fears and anxieties and trying to inflame them and misdirect them and say, OK, well, the problem is immigrants or trans kids or um, socialists or woke professors or whatever it is. So I think the we on the left and, you know, especially those of us who are organizing also need to speak to people's insecurities uh, and recognize that it's really widespread. You know, even people who appear to be kind of getting ahead, you know, are always worried that the floor is going to fall out from under them. I mean, all it takes in this country is one medical emergency to devastate, you know, a seemingly middle class family. You know, even white collar professionals um, can be laid off at a moment's notice and don't have a robust safety net to catch them. We're all worried about uh, natural disasters and, and pandemics. So I think, uh, you know, we we can't cede that territory uh, to the right wing. And it's our job to, to speak to the, the real fears people have and say, hey, these anxieties are things you actually have in common with each other. You know, let's fight for a world in which we're all taken care of. That's really what organizing is about. It's the alchemy of turning our vulnerabilities, turning our oppression, turning our insecurities into solidarity so that we can change the structures um, that are undermining our self-esteem and our well-being. Uh, very quickly, tell about what happened to your sister working in a coffee shop. You're concerned about surveillance. We only have 30 seconds. 
Yeah, my sister was working at a hip Brooklyn cafe that seemed kind of retro and low tech. And、uh, it turned out that actually this charming cafe was a panopticon with at least eight security cameras where the boss could tune in from any angle at any minute, you know, and tell the employees, hey, stop being so, so talkative,、um, you know, get to work. And those cameras weren't there to make the workers feel safe. They were there to make them feel like they could be fired at any minute. And that's a condition too many workers are experiencing. And it's emblematic of the ways that, you know, capitalism is、uh, an insecurity machine. It depends on all of us being insecure、uh, to amass power and profits. And, and we need something different. Astor Taylor, thanks so much for being with us, organizer with the Debt Collective, the new book, The Age of Insecurity Coming Together as Things Fall Apart. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.